today. Um, I want to just begin with a word of prayer, if we may. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious God, we thank you for the chance to gather together on this Easter day. Uh, God, it's all about you. It's all about the empty tomb. And so, Lord, we just come to celebrate that, Lord, and we just ask that your Holy Spirit would work and stir in our hearts as we hear from your word, as we continue to sing, as we receive communion here in a little while, God, that your Holy Spirit would just work in our hearts, encourage us today, remind us over and over again, God, that you have conquered death and the grave. And so, Lord, we give you all the praise and glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, we have been in a series looking at 1 Corinthians chapter. By the way, y'all look great today. <laughs> and there's so many of you. Um, so we've been in a series looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is a passage where Paul talks about the resurrection of the dead. He's been making a case for that the resurrection of the dead is a real event and it's going to happen. Um, I've got a timeline for you here. This is if you've been around Hebron for some years, you perhaps may have, this may look familiar to you. If not, I'm going to explain it nonetheless. Um, and so what you basically have, human, the way human history is presented biblically, is that there are two ages. There's the age of the law, which is the Old Testament age, and then there's the age of the spirit or the church age, and that's the age that we live in now. The age of the law came to a conclusion either at the, resur- at the, return or the ascension of Christ or perhaps around 70 A.D. when the, when the temple sacrificial system was destroyed. Um, but the second age begins with the coming of Jesus. And so he was announcing that the kingdom of God has come, that his reign and his rulership in, in the world has now pushed back the power of Satan, has pushed back the power of demons, and his reign and rulership have now come into our existence. Um, what I'm going to be preaching about today comes from 1 Corinthians 15, which targets the very end of that timeline that you see there. Yeah, I'm over on this side. Which targets the very end of that timeline that you see there, which is the end of human history. It talks about the return of Christ. And when Jesus returns, he return in the sky. He's going to bring with him the souls of those that have departed in Christ. Uh, and when they do, that's going to bring that timeline to a close. So just from a chronological standpoint, you can kind of see where we're going. Hopefully that helps you as you think about all this. Um, again, our text comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It is our custom to stand to our feet for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to ask if you would do that. We'll be reading 1 Corinthians 15, three verses, verse 52, 50, or 50. Anyhow, it's one of those. Uh, 50, yeah, 51, 52, and verse 54. Let's read together. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. You may be seated. Thank you so much. All right, well, I'm just going to dive into these verses, as is our custom around here. We'll just kind of walk through these together. We're going to start at verse 51. Verse 51, uh, Paul begins, Behold, I tell you a mystery. And what is this mystery that he's going to share with his Corinthian, which is really kind of a more Gentile, not Jewish background kind of folks. And so he shares with them here in verse 51. Here's the mystery. We shall not all sleep. Now, the term sleep that he uses there is a euphemism, and it refers to people who have died. It's very similar to you or I saying that so-and-so has passed away. It's just a nicer way of saying that somebody has died. They would have said somebody's fallen asleep. We say that they have passed away. So he says, not everybody's going to sleep. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And what is this change that's going to occur? Paul tells us here in verse 53. Skip forward. He says, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. That is, we're going to exchange the body that we have right now that's subject to aging, that's subject to death, that's subject to decay. 
And this body we're going to exchange will be for one that will no longer decay, will no longer age, a body that is immortal, it will not die. It will be a death-free existence. Verse 53, for the perishable body must put on the imperishable. Now the question is, well, when is this going to happen, Paul? And so Paul tells us, go back to verse 52. So I know I'm bumping around here a little bit, but verse 52, he says, um, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. So this is not going to be some kind of progressive change that's going to take place, but rather it's going to change that occurs instantaneously. This is not going to be microevolution of the human race. This is going to be an instantaneous change that God um, inaugurates. And again, when is this going to happen? Middle of verse 52, he tells us right there. You ready? Here's when this change is going to happen. At the last trumpet. And I know y'all are thinking, but I was looking for like January the 3rd on, you know. What? No, the, the Bible doesn't give us a calendar date. What the Bible gives us is that at the end of that timeline that I showed just a little bit, a little bit ago, at the end of human history, when the last trumpet is blown, that is when um, this change will take place. That is when Jesus returns to the earth. Uh, we do, again, Jesus is going to return. There'll be this loud trumpet blast that will be heard global wide. And when that happens, the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. Over in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, so he writes a letter to a group of people in a place called Thessalonica. So in his letter to the Thessalonians, Paul talks about or gives some more additional details, detail, some greater specificity about this event, the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. Here's a couple verses from there. First Thessalonians chapter 4. He writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. There's our euphemism referring to people who have died, died in Christ. Um, verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So Paul is saying here that at the end of human history, Jesus will appear in the sky to bring human history to a close. He will bring with him the souls of all those who have died in Christ who are in heaven right now. He's going to bring them with, them with him. And when he does, their bodies, their scattered remains will be reconstituted from the dust of the earth, and those, those reconstituted remains will rise up from the dust of the earth, will rejoin their souls in the sky, and that is, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, this is not the zombie apocalypse. This is the resurrection of the dead. This is that doctrine that Paul is talking about here. Um, now, as we examine these two texts, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we discover that they're talking about the same event. There's tons of similarities uh, between these two texts and what Paul's talking about. Paul's informing his non-Jewish audience, largely Gentile audience, about the biblical doctrinal teaching of the resurrection of the dead. He's bringing them up to speed uh, to something that perhaps they weren't all that accustomed to hearing. Um, when we arrive at verse 54, back to 1 Corinthians 15, when we arrive at verse 54, we discover the climactic statement. Now, if you've missed any of the other sermons in this series where we've gone through chapter 15, Carla's done a great job. She loads all that stuff online. And so you can go back there and listen to some of that. But here comes the big climactic statement of chapter 15. He says there, so everything he's been arguing up to this point for a bodily resurrection of the dead. Some of the Corinthians weren't too sure that this is indeed what was going to happen. Paul's been saying, nope, here's why that's going to happen. Here's why it's going to happen. Giving them all kinds of reasons, all kinds of logic, teaching them about this resurrection body that they're going to get. And when they finally come to that place where Paul's like, okay, 
everything that I've argued up to this point, it comes to a head with this statement, the big climactic statement, verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, that is on the day of Jesus' return, when the immortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying by Isaiah. He's quoting here from the Old Testament. So the big climactic statement is actually a quote from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And here's the statement, death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. Again, that quote comes from Isaiah chapter 25 and verse 8. Um, and it is part of, as I was discovering in my readings this week, Isaiah 25 verse 8 is part of a larger section in the book of Isaiah that is referred to by Bible scholars as the little apocalypse. So apparently, um, I didn't know this. This was something new to me this week. And so I dug into it and enjoyed reading about it. Isaiah chapter 24, 25, 26, and 27. So four chapters there in Isaiah. He's talking about this little apocalypse. He's talking about this great day of the Lord, the day of the Messiah's return. And he says this is going to be a day when God levels and, and sets everything back right again. When God brings justice, when God defends the oppressed, when God avenges uh, the oppressed, when he destroys death, when he's going to purge the earth of everything that's wrong. And a lot of the imagery that we run into in 1 Thess- Corinthians chapter 15 and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is actually drawn from, even a lot of stuff in the book of Revelation, is drawn from these passages over here in Isaiah 24, 25, 26, and 27, this little apocalypse. Let me give you just a little bit of flavor of these passages in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 24 and verse 1, Isaiah writes, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. And he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. Now, you don't see this in the English, but in the Hebrew language, those are actually a couple of those descriptive words are onomatopoeias. You're all familiar with an onomatopoeia, is, right? It's kind of words like pop, zing, pow, bang. It's the, wor- it's the sound that something makes just written in English uh, lettering or phonics. Um, and so a couple of these words are like that. And, and some of the words that are expressed here are kind of like that tree that fell over in Augusta a couple of days ago. I don't know if any of y'all were familiar with that, saw that online. Remember, there was a couple of pine trees that fell over in Augusta. One of them actually snapped in half. I heard one of the commentators saying that she was a good 15-minute walk away, and she said it was deafening where she was. So when that thing hit the ground and when it snapped, she said it was just like a... a, a They could just, like a bomb had gone off, a massive clap of thunder. Well, that's kind of similar to what some of these words that are expressed here in the Hebrew. It's the snapping of a tree. It's the cracking of rock. That's what's being expressed. He says down in verse 19, same chapter. On that great day, the earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. Skip forward to chapter 26 and verse 19. Remember, Paul is looking at these verses in Isaiah. And he's using these verses in the little apocalypse to inform him as he writes to the Corinthians. Y'all follow me? Okay. All right, so here he he says here, Isaiah chapter uh, 26 and verse 19. Your dead shall live. He's talking about the great day of the Lord. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, that's dead people, awake. And sing for joy, he says, for your dew is a dew of light. And get this, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Isaiah, some 700 years before the Apostle Paul would ever show up, writing about this great day of the Lord, this great resurrection of the dead. At the end of the passage, Isaiah chapter 27 and verse 13, he says, And in that day, what is it that you're going to hear? The great what? The great trumpet will be blown in those who were lost, whether it was in Assyria, 
uh, during the time of Isaiah, or whether it was some of the Israelites who were driven out of Egypt during the time of Moses, or from Paul's perspective, whether it was martyrs who were sent to be burned at the stake in Rome. Those folks will gather together. They'll come and they'll worship the Lord on the holy mountain in their newly resurrected bodies. So I hope what you see here in my presentation is that there's nothing new. Paul's just drawing from stuff that's already been taught in the Old Testament, and he's just relaying that to his New Testament audience, that there's continuity between Old Testament prophecy and New Testament teachings. The expectation that the dead would be raised was not some new concept. It may have been to the Gentile Christians living in Corinth. It may have been to the Gentile Christians living in Thessalonica. But to someone who grew up Jewish, whose mom used to read them Isaiah stories when they were little kids, this was old hat, right? Everybody who was Jewish knew about Isaiah, talking about the resurrection of the dead. Of course everybody's going to be resurrected from the dead. Any Jewish little boy or little girl knew that. Um, in the next verse, verse 55, Paul then quotes from another Old Testament prophet, the prophet Hosea, same subject, death getting defeated. Hosea writes, or he's quoting here from Hosea, Paul writes, verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So not only had Isaiah talked about this resurrection of the dead, this great day of the Lord, but another prophet of God, Hosea, had also talked about this day of resurrection. The prophet Daniel, in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2, he also talked about a great day of resurrection. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting uh, contempt. The Jews knew this. They were anticipating a future day when the dead in Christ would be resurrected bodily. Move forward, fast forward to the time of Jesus. He uh, gets news that a friend of his, a guy by the name of Lazarus, has died. Jesus makes his way to Bethany where Lazarus has been laid in the tomb. Uh, this is a week before Jesus himself will be put on the cross and resurrected from the dead. Uh, I believe it was a Friday or maybe a Saturday. Uh, Jesus will be on the cross the next Friday, resurrecting the following Sunday morning. And so um, he goes to... Uh, he goes to Lazarus' home, and he meets Martha there, or actually they're standing out there at the tomb. And Jesus says, John chapter 11 and verse 23, to, to Martha, he says, your brother will rise again. Again, she'd grown up, grown up hearing Mama read the bedtime stories about what Isaiah had said from the little apocalypse and all this stuff. And so she says, I know he's going to rise again. I mean, everybody knows he's going to rise again at the, resur at the resurrection on the last day. Right? She wasn't thinking that Jesus meant right now. She was thinking about sometime off in the future at the end of time when the Messiah will come and then they'll have this great resurrection of the dead. The prophet Ezekiel was instructed. We sang about this earlier. The prophet Ezekiel was instructed by God to prophesy over a valley of dry bones. Ezekiel 37 and verse 12. Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. This was, again... Nothing shocking here, the thought of somebody being resurrected from the dead. But if I grew up in Corinth, or if I grew up uh, you know, not, not, in the, not in the local church, not in a local synagogue, these ideas were somewhat unfamiliar to me. These ideas maybe even sounded strange to me, and so they required some explanation. They required some convincing for these early Christians. Um, but for the Jewish people, hey, look, they've grown up on this stuff. They knew this stuff. They've been taught this stuff. And so it was no um, difficulty for them to agree. All right, well, that is our treatment of this text for today, which means it is time for us to stop and ask the question we ask every week around here. 
What difference does all this make to my life? Um, I love that question. I'm very fond of that question. Um, And it's a great one. So let's see if we can answer that. Um, As a pastor, one of my responsibilities, um, and it is my honor as well, is to officiate or to preside over funerals. Um, I, I couldn't even begin to put a number on how many funerals I've attended, how many funerals I've officiated over the many years. Um, But one thing I can say about those funerals is that there's a consistent theme through all of them, and that's sadness. I mean, someone who has just lost a dear loved one, uh, there's there's an emptiness in their life. Um, Sometimes there's a shock of the loss. Sometimes saw it coming, but nevertheless, um, you know, we just lost that person that we love so dearly, and sadness just seems to prevail over those funeral services. Recently, on two different occasions, I was speaking with uh, some ladies who had been widowed, um, and they had just lost their husbands recently, and both of them said, in different separate conversations, both of them said, I look over to see him sitting in his chair, and he's not there. Uh, They said, I'll call out in the house, hey, so-and-so, can you bring me? And then they realize, they're thinking he's over in the next room, but he's not there, he's gone. And so the mind just has to kind of reorient to this new normal. Um, Here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes an announcement. He connects the dots between his insistence on this teaching of the resurrection of the dead and what that means practically for your future and for mine. He says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 54, he says, death will be swallowed up in victory. My translation No more funerals. We get to the end of human history. We get to the end of time. Jesus returns in the sky. Reconstituted bodies come up out of the dust of the ground. But the bodies that we receive, Paul says, are going to be imperishable bodies. Bodies that will never die. They'll be immortal bodies. You'll be like the elves of Lord of the Rings, right? And so you just live on forever and ever. They don't age. The bodies don't decay. And so um, just this remarkable existence. So no more funerals. What the resurrection of the dead means is that never again will we attend a funeral service in the afterlife. It means no more standing out in the hot sun. It means no more standing out in the cold rain. It means no more eulogies to be written. It means there'll be no more obituaries to be published. It means that there'll be no more funeral homes, no more funeral processions, no more, no more funeral hearses. There'll be no more black suits. There'll be no more black dresses. There'll be no more sympathy cards. There may be a florist in heaven. I like to think that there will be a florist in heaven, I like flowers, but there will be no more funeral flowers. There will be no more hospice care. There won't even be a cemetery in heaven because there will be no need for it at the return of Christ when we get our newly resurrected, imperishable, immortal bodies. Paul announces death won't be able to sting us, verse 55, won't be able to sting us anymore. In fact, Isaiah reports that there won't even be tears of sadness in heaven. Isaiah 50, 25 and verse 8 the Lord will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will, God will wipe away tears from all faces. I love the imagery of God, our creator, literally brushing aside our tears of sadness. I love the imagery of God touching our cheeks personally and saying, you know what, I'm going to remove sadness from forever from your experience. The resurrection of the dead into these imperishable, immortal bodies, friends, is God's forever fix his forever solution to the problem of death. Death will be swallowed up in victory. As the saying goes, in life there are two things that are certain. Death and 
April 15th. Taxes, right? Just around the corner. Um, I don't have a solution to the taxes problem. Sorry, I'm having to do mine this year as well. But again, God gives us the solution to the problem of death. On the great day of the Lord, when Jesus returns in the sky and our mortal bodies are reconstituted and raised imperishable and immortal, death will be swallowed up in victory. No more funerals. Second difference, amen, I, 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 I agree with you. Um, the second difference that this makes to your life and to mine is that if we want to be a part of this forever existence, then there is a condition that we have to meet. Okay, there's a condition that we have to meet. Over in John chapter 3 and verse 16, you can flip over there, just follow along with me on the screen, either way it's fine. John chapter 3 and verse 16, uh, Jesus says these words. He's been teaching on the afterlife, and here's what he has to say about himself. He says, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. Now that is what is referred to by theologians as a conditional promise. The promise is everlasting life. I mean, we all want that. We all want to go to heaven. We all want to spend eternity. We want these imperishable, you know, elven bodies, right, that don't age and that just look great all the time. We all want that, but there's a condition that we have to meet in order to receive that promise. And the condition is, he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes. We have to believe. This is more than just acknowledging that Jesus um, was a good person. This is more than just acknowledging that Jesus died on the cross and resurrected from the dead. But this is putting our faith and our trust for eternity in that work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. Recognizing that I have a sin problem that I cannot fix and that I'm looking to somebody else to fix that for me. Otherwise, I'm going to have to pay the penalty for my sins. But when we put our faith and trust in Jesus on the cross, friends, and recognize that he paid the price for us, that is when we enter into this relationship with him and, be, and we meet the condition for receiving the promise. Friend, if you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, let today be that day. Let today be that day. Before you lay your head down on your pillow tonight, you get down on your knees and you invite Jesus Christ into your life. Ask him to be your Lord and your Savior. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Meet the condition so that you can receive the promise. No more important decision will you ever make. In just a few moments, we're going to gather around this table and we will receive communion. Communion reminds us of that sacrifice that Jesus paid on the cross for us. Uh, over in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he talks about, some, he quotes Jesus in a couple of lines there where he says, Jesus saying, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus said, hey, look, as often as you gather together, break the bread, drink from the cup, be reminded of the sacrifice that I made for you. One, it reminds you of how much I love you. I was willing to crawl up on that cross. I was willing to let them do that to me. God, Jesus didn't have to let the Romans do what they did to him. He didn't have to listen to uh, the folks shouting crucify him. He didn't have to allow the trial before the Sanhedrin to take place. He allowed all of those things to happen. And he did that, friends, because of his great love for us. And so he says, look, as often as you gather together... Do these things in remembrance of me. I'm going to introduce the communion elements to us. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke bread, saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he blessed the cup and he said, 
This is my blood which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink in remembrance of me. I'm going to invite our ushers to come forward. They're going to be serving you. Um, when, they, when you make your way up to the front, you'll take a piece of bread, dip it in the juice, and then consume it and make your way back around the outside aisles to your seats. So I'm going to serve the ushers first and then our praise team for those that are um, doing music, and then we'll uh, have the rest of you all come forward.